But I don't think chapter 7 is about Melchizedek. I think it's about Jesus. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus being greater. Here's my little secret. Always keep your eyes on Jesus and everything will make sense. Melchizedek, even in his titles, was pointing to Jesus. If the Levitical priesthood and the law could have produced this perfection, this this restoring of access to God, that we could draw near to God, bringing man back to God, there would have been no need for another priest. All the feasts, all the rituals, all the stuff they did, even bringing sacrifice for sin, that was all done away with at the cross because they were just pictures pointing to Jesus. Remember that phrase, once for all. He's going to come back to that in our study of Hebrews. And the application of Hebrews chapter 7 is obvious. Why would anyone ever turn away from Jesus? We'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I love the book of Hebrews. I uh, told the first service that uh, I went to Bible college and paid a lot of money to learn about the Bible, and yet I graduated from Bible college and I didn't really understand what Hebrews was about. And uh, now as we go through it, and I'm studying it again, and in all my years of ministry, I've never preached through Hebrews because it's deep theological stuff. It's like, this isn't that hard. It makes sense, and it's, it's, it's amazing. So, uh, and you're going to love this today. It's, this is some pretty deep water uh, today, but uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll go, piece of cake, good stuff, and it has an effect on us. By the way, if you're new to Crossroads, we, um, we teach through the Bible. We don't teach about the Bible. We uh, teach through the Bible. We go through Bible books, and uh, verse by verse. And uh, we don't leave anything out. We don't just preach the good parts or the fun parts. We don't just pick and choose scriptures out of the Bible that support our personal opinions. We uh, set aside our opinions and go with what God has to say. And uh, that's what we've been doing in Hebrews. This is the 12th message in this series, and uh, simply titled, The Superiority of Christ and the New Covenant. And I'll be honest with you up front. I know that sounds boring. I totally get that. But by the end of this message, if you still think it's boring, I'll give you your money back. All right, fair enough? We good? We good with that? Have you ever noticed how things in our world are constantly being replaced with something else? Let me give you a few examples. Like, for instance, fire. None of us has a fire in our house now for light and heat. We have electricity. Uh, the horse and buggy was replaced, thank the Lord, with the automobile. Uh, washing clothes by hand, which was never a big problem to me, but ladies... You don't have to do it like that anymore. You have a washing machine or drying clothes on a clothesline in the backyard. I did have to do that. I can remember taking those little things, those, what, what do you call them? I have, no, I have no idea what you said. Clothespins. How many of you did not know what a clothespin was before you came this morning? Raise your hand. All of you knew? Okay. I used to have to do that, and, and I can't tell you how many times clothes got dropped on the ground, got some stuff on them, but I just shook them off and put them back on there. Don't have to do it anymore. Got, 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 got a dryer. Or how about listening to the radio for entertainment and television? That was just a little bit before my time, but that used to be what people did until there were, it was replaced by the TV. And then the black and white TV came out, and they had three channels, ABC, NBC, CBS. 
And by the way, that was back in the days when you could watch no matter what they put on. It was good stuff. Now you got to go, oh, I can't watch that. Turn it off. It was eventually replaced by color TV, living color TV. In fact, it was interesting to me to learn this week, it was in 1972 that the sale of color TVs surpassed that of black and white TVs. People didn't want to give up the black and white TV. Turns out we say we like change, but we, we really don't like the change. Typewriters, remember that? They were replaced by computers. Uh, rotary phones. So you say, well, rotary phone. When I became pastor of this church in 1992 over on Bowen Road, I had a black rotary phone. Not anymore. Replaced by cell phones. Paper maps. Remember the map? Any of you remember Mapsco? We used to flip all that stuff. And I told the story in the first service. I wasn't going to tell it in this service, but I got to tell it now since I saw so many hands. When I moved to uh, Texas, they, um, we closed on our house and were able to move our stuff in the same day. Never happens. Never happens. Got all our stuff loaded into our house. I was up at the church, and uh, they had some visitor's cards of people who visited the service. I thought, I got I to go out and knock on doors. I got to find people. This little church, averaging 188, I got to go reach some people. And so, so I got in my car, and I headed out for a place called Mansfield. Now, I'm new. I'm new here. And I get maps go, and I'm flipping and changing all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> About 9 o'clock, I was up somewhere north of Colleyville. <laughs> true story, true story. And uh, finally stopped at a gas station. I said, sir, <clears throat> can you tell me where this Mansfield is? He goes, oh, sir, that's way south of here. I go, how, how way south? He goes, oh, it's, it's way south, like almost an hour. And I go, okay, okay, so how do I get there? And he to show me, and he told me. So I went by what he told me, not what a map scope. I couldn't figure it out. I'd never seen a map scope before I moved here. Finally, about 10 o'clock, I arrived at a home in Mansfield. It was the home of Gerald and Sharon Smith. Never forget their names. Knocked on the door. They opened the door and said, Pastor, what are you doing here? And I said, listen, I, you're not going to believe this. I have this map scope. I've been trying to find your address. I didn't know where Mansfield was. I ended up somewhere, I don't know, where. He just got here and... I was going to see you no matter what. I told God. In fact, I did. I, I yelled at God out the windshield of my, 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 my car when I was on the road. And I go, if you want me to reach people, you've got to show me how to get there. <laughs> and that's when he said, stop at a gas station. Anyway, they said, well, Pastor, we're glad you're here, but it's awful late. It's 10 o'clock. Can you come back some other time? I go, sure. When? They said, how about Thursday for lunch? Bring your wife. So we did. My wife and I went over there for lunch on Thursday. Found out that Gerald and Sharon Smith <clears throat> um, were related to my favorite Bible college professor at Ozark, David Roadcup. She had a real heart for She goes, you, your sermons, we, we need to have recordings of that. And our entire media ministry began with Sharon Smith making tapes every week. And i uh, never forget it. So I have kind of a, I kind of have a sweet spot in my heart for the MAPSCO. But I'm so glad we have GPS now. Amen, amen. Apple Maps, Google Maps, Waze. By the way, if you don't use Waze, that was, that was discovered in Israel by the Jewish people. It's pretty good. I think it's the best one out there, but hey, that's a whole other sermon. Vinyl records were replaced by cassette tapes. One of our staff told me this week, Pastor, you know vinyl records are coming back? I said, well, good. That's good. I'm not going to buy one. But anyway... Um, cassette tapes were replaced by CDs, CDs replaced by digital downloads. Remember mainframe computers, big as your house? 
replaced by personal desktop, then, then laptops, then iPads, then iPhones. If you have an iPhone, if you have a cell phone today, you have a computer. You don't even need a computer. You can do everything on that, 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 that cell phone. VCR players, remember those? The big tapes that went into them. Replaced by DVD players, which were replaced now by streaming services like Hulu and Netflix. And, and listen, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we're not done. They're going to keep replacing stuff. That's just the way the world works. Everything is in a constant state of obsolescence. In other words, the, the process or condition of becoming obsolete, including us. It's not going to last forever. And that's why Jesus was so wise when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. You'll be disappointed. And that's where we're coming in the book of Hebrews today as we come to chapter 8. There's a change, a big change. Chuck Smendall said, I quote, the author of Hebrews will make this point patently clear in chapter 8 when he demonstrates that the Mosaic Covenant established under specific conditions for a particular people at a particular time was never meant to last forever, as we'll see in a moment. In fact, he quotes an Old Testament prophecy that anticipates the replacement of the Old Covenant with the New, proving to his Jewish readers that the one has become obsolete, replaced by another that will never pass away. Now, this is not a turning point in the book of Hebrews. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. The entire book proclaims that Jesus is greater. In fact, he is superior there is no one, there is no thing that can measure up to him. He is incomparable. Can I get a small amen on that one? Amen. Yeah. The Hebrew writer drives home that point in these next three chapters, chapter 8 today, chapter 9, and then chapter 10. Chapter 8, the better covenant. Chapter 9, the better, the, the, the better sanctuary, a heavenly one. Chapter 10, a better sacrifice. Don't miss that one. His own life. Now, the theme of this eighth chapter is the better covenant. But once again, I want to tell you, it's about Jesus. And as you study the Bible, if you understand, if you just keep your eyes on Jesus, it will all make sense. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. He writes, now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You may be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
want to take you back to the first verse again, where he says, now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You know what he's saying? He's saying everything that we've said in these first the first part of this letter, we know them as chapters, but it was a, a letter from the Hebrew writer. It's all been leading to this. Everything I've said, everything we've read was leading to this. Jesus and his priesthood is transcendentally supreme and superior to the Aaronic priesthood. You say, why is that important? You're about to find out. Notice, first of all, the superiority of Christ. How is he supreme? How is his priesthood superior? And what does that mean for us today? Well, there are three distinct ways the Hebrew writer says that his priesthood is superior. Number one, where he sits is superior. Where he sits is superior. He says, we have one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, pay attention. His posture is saying something. His posture is telling us about his preeminence and his permanence. He is seated. Just a few weeks ago on Good Friday, I preached on what happened over 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, and one of his final statements from John 19.30, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. What is it? Your salvation and mine. The work of salvation was done at the cross. John was given a picture of the things to come in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it tells us that this, they sang this new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. One of these days, Jesus is going to come back, take the church, lift us out of the world, and uh, all hell will break loose on the earth. You think it's bad now? Nothing compared to what happens when the Antichrist is here and all that mess, but we'll be in heaven and there'll be a celebration like no celebration ever before, and we will save Jesus. All the glory and all the praise and all the honor goes to you. This, this, what you've done is amazing. We can't fully appreciate it in this light, but one day we will. Now, <clears throat> no priest on earth ever sat down. They didn't. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's in Hebrews. So what was the point of all these priests? What was the point of all these sacrifices if it could never take away sins? Hang on. You see, their work was never done because their work was mere pictures of what was to come. They were never permanently effective, and therefore they had to repeat it over and over again. But there was no place in the tabernacle for the priest to sit down. Even the mercy seat was not an actual seat where you could sit down. That's where the blood was to be applied, a picture of what was to come. 
And only the high priest could go in there once a year. And even when he was done, he couldn't sit down. He had to get out of there. What was all that about? But Jesus. You get Jesus in the picture and everything changes. You ever notice that? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Something no priest had ever done. Something no priest could ever do. One commentator said he accomplished in one glorious act what all the priests of the old covenant had not accomplished and could never have accomplished, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Now, there's an interesting story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. It's about a man named Stephen. He's one, he's one of the magnificent seven. So who, who's the magnificent seven? The first seven deacons of the first church in Jerusalem. If you don't know the story, let me, re, let me retell it here quickly. There were some problems going on in the first church. Now, I know you all believe there should never be a problem in any church, right? No. No, every church, if it has this one ingredient, it's going to have problems. You know what that one ingredient is? People. So they had a little problem going on, and it was about some meals being served to widows, and one group of widows got served first, and all this stuff was going on. So they came to the apostles. What do we do? What do we do? Got to fix it. You know what the apostles said? Appoint seven deacons, servants from among you, men full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Let them handle that. We're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Great idea. Still a great idea to follow. Stephen was one of those first deacons. He helped solve one of the very first problems in the very first church. But not only that, he became an evangelist. He was so fired up about the church and about Jesus, he was telling everybody about Jesus, and he was so good at it, and he was such a powerful preacher that the Sanhedrin took him outside of the city to stone him and shut him up. But before they could kill him, and they did, Luke in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 56, said this is what happened. Now when they heard these things, Stephen preaching, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He said, Time out, Pastor. You just told us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Well, he is. But you just told us that Stephen looked into heaven and saw Jesus standing. He did. John MacArthur said, as far as redemption is concerned, Jesus is seated because he rests from the finished work of redemption. But when one of his own falls into trouble, he stands up. He stands up because he takes the position of action. His power and his energy are immediately activated in behalf of his beloved He sits as our Redeemer, but He is standing as our helper 
whenever we're in a time of need. I love that. Yeah. We could just go home right now. That was worth the whole morning right there, right? Where he sits is superior. But the Hebrew writer's not done. He says where he serves is superior. In verse 2, he tells us that Jesus ministers in the holy places, in heaven, in the true tent, the tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. Now, by the way, when it says true tent, that's not meaning that the tabernacle was false or it was counterfeit. No, he's just referring to the fact that the heavenly tabernacle is the genuine one. The one that Moses was told he was to erect an earthly tabernacle that's like this one. If you want to read about it, Exodus chapter 25, verse 1, to chapter 27, verse 21. Moses was told, make sure that you build everything according to the pattern. Now, kind of an interesting side note that I didn't know about until this week when I was studying it. Most trusted Bible scholars believe that the word for pattern in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, meant something more than verbal instruction. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, he was either shown a picture or a vision or a model. We have a model upstairs. If you've never seen it, you ought to go at the service over. You ought to go up there. It's a model of our whole campus. It's got the main facility on there. It's got our sports center on there. It's got the children's building on there. It's got the completed youth building. You can look at it and see how it's it's all supposed to look. And, and, And what's being built here and what's here is very close to that model. But that model was built years ago, and it cost us a lot of money to have that model built. But I'm glad we had that model because it helped us to picture what this was going to be like when it was done. God had a model for Moses on the mountain. So how did, how did God have a model? You didn't have people back then to build all that stuff and put all that stuff together. Well, God just said, model. Now, if you don't believe that, you need to know. Go back to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, and it says that, that God just simply said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, you had the sun, the moon, and all the stars, millions of them, hundreds of millions. You see, he can just speak things into existence. One commentator said the sanctuary in which Jesus is a minister is infinitely superior to the one in which the Jewish priests ministered. As would be expected, the superior priest ministers in a superior sanctuary. He does not minister in a temple of cedar and gold or in a temple of white marble or beautiful and impressive as they were, much less in a tabernacle made of animal skins. When the book of Hebrews was written, the tabernacle had not been used for a thousand years, and the temple built by Herod would be standing for less than five more years. But Jesus' sanctuary is the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not men, and which can never rot or crumble or be destroyed. See, Moses was told, make sure you build this according to the pattern. We'll see in a moment why that's important. In verse 3, the Hebrew writer says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. You know what Jesus gave? He gave the greatest sacrifice of all. He gave his own life. And that one sacrifice, that that one gift he gave is sufficient for everyone for all time and eternity. Then the Hebrew writer makes 
an interesting point. He says in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus never served in the temple on earth as a priest. Not once. He couldn't serve in the temple on earth because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He couldn't serve under the old system. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He preached in the synagogue. He claimed he and the Father were one. He, he even forgave sins and verified he had the, the authority to do it. But he never once served in, in the temple. Never attempted. Dr. MacArthur again said, Jesus could not minister the old offerings in the old earthly sanctuary. He ministers the new offerings in the new heavenly sanctuary built by God, not men. And then the Hebrew writer says in verse 5, the earthly priests served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, God told Moses, I want to make sure you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Why, why, why was that important? Because it all pictured and it all pointed to Jesus. Everything about it. I uh, have a series of messages on the tabernacle where I explain how every single thing in that tabernacle Pictures Jesus, points to Jesus. The poles, the, the skins, the, the different colors, the, the linen, the, the gold stands, the silver bases, all of it. It all points to Jesus. Every bit of it. It was a picture of his coming and what he would do. Can I just step back for a moment and say, is that your story? That everything in your life you do it because you're trying to point people to Jesus? What a goal for all of us. To get to the place where, where our life, everything we do is for one purpose, to, to help people know Jesus. That was the point. And then the Hebrew writer says in verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent how is it so much more excellent? Well, that's the third thing. Not only where he sits is superior, not only where he serves is superior, where he stands is superior. He stands alone. That's not just a reference to the fact that he's, he's in heaven. He's, he stands as a mediator like no other mediator could ever stand. He did what no one else could ever do. He did what no priest could ever do. Paul tried to summarize it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, when he said, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus could stand where no one else could stand because he did what no one else could ever do. And that's why the Hebrew writer says he's obtained a ministry that as is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. You say, okay, so how's this, how's this new covenant better? It's not just better. I want you to know, secondly, the superiority of the new covenant. How is the new covenant superior to the old? Well, for starters, it has a better mediator. It's enacted on better promises, the Hebrew writer says, but that's not all. He says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
Now, I want to be very clear. The old covenant was not false, but it had faults. It had limitations, as was brilliantly pointed out by the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, you don't need to turn there. It's in Hebrews chapter 8. The Hebrew writer quotes what one of their most famous prophets had written. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah made it clear a new covenant was coming. And it would not be like the covenant he had made with their fathers when he led them out of Egypt because they broke covenant. They didn't continue. So it's going to be different this time. Do you know what Jesus said in John 15, 10? He said one of the distinguishing marks that would characterize his disciples was that they would continue. They would remain. They would abide Whenever you see someone who used to preach or teach or used to lead or used to be a part of a church that you've been a part of, and all of a sudden they're gone, and they don't go to church anymore, and they say they don't love the Bible anymore, and they don't love Jesus, you're not looking at someone who is a true disciple. Jesus said, my disciples will continue. Faithfulness will mark them. No matter what comes, no matter what happens, because they'll understand the new covenant. You say, well, Pastor, that's all good and all that, but Jeremiah said that this was a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's, that's not us. That's for the Jews. Well, if you read Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul said, when Gentiles are saved, they become spiritual descendants of Abraham. We get to be a part of it. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 22, salvation is from the Jews. He didn't say it's for the Jews. It's from the Jews. In other words, it wasn't just for them. Now, God chose them. They are his chosen people. I heard a Bible teacher one time say, how odd of God to choose the Jews. But he did. And salvation is from them. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, I want to make very clear to you, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you want to always stand with the Jewish people. That's why if you have the opportunity to go to the Holy Land someday and and actually go to the Holy Land and love on some of those people and just just look at them. I remember the first time we went to Israel, and I I saw these people, and I, I just was overwhelmed with emotion. These are the people God loves, enough to send his son. I mean, our Messiah came from them. Our Bible came from them. Salvation comes from the Jews. But guess what? Salvation is for every person who will believe. 
Jesus, uh, John recorded Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 12, saying, yet to all who believed, who received him and believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's why I like the old King James Bible where it used to say, whosoever will may come. That's us. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It never was just for them. But that's where it started. And Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So ladies and gentlemen, all that say this. This new covenant is with us. And there's four things about this covenant that is superior. And that's what I want to leave you with. Number one, it's internal, not external. Verse 10, I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, God gave the commandments, statutes, and ordinances to the people of Israel from a place of remote distance, from the top of Mount Sinai, through Moses, on tablets of stones, and from the lips of the priests and the prophets. But this new covenant would be written on the minds and the hearts of people. It's internal, not external. We don't need anybody to pre- uh, preach to us now and tell us. We don't need a priest to tell us the truth of the, of the Word. We can, we can know it ourselves. It's internal, not external. Here's number two. It's based on relationship, not repercussions. Did you know the old covenant was based on repercussions? The new covenant's based on relationship. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No one had a close relationship with God under the old covenant. They couldn't. Even the high priest was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies only one day a year, and he couldn't stay there. He had to leave. You couldn't just walk in at the Old Testament tabernacle, walk in the holy place, and go in the Holy of Holies. No, no, you weren't allowed to do that. You'd be struck dead. You couldn't just go in and touch, touch the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what happened to Uzzah? Uzzah was just a good old guy who loved God, and one day they were, they were moving the ark toward Jerusalem, and the ark began to fall, and he reached out to, to hold the ark, and God struck him dead. And that still fires up some people. They think, well, I, I can't love a God who would do something like that. No, you don't understand. God says what he means and means what he says. And he said, no, no one's to touch the ark. God's dirt is cleaner than man's hand. But no one could just walk in there. They couldn't, no one had a personal relationship in the Old Testament. They obeyed out of fear. Remember when you were a little kid and that's the way you obeyed? Yeah, wait till your father gets home. Oh, you heard that too? Yeah. You obeyed out of fear. Then finally you got to the place where you realized, okay, I don't have to be scared of these people. And if I do what's right, I'm, 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 I'm changed. They obeyed out of fear. There, there were rewards for obedience. There were, there were problems. There were punishment. There were repercussions for disobedience. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy 28, that's the only chapter in the Bible you need to read to understand that. Because God says to his people through Moses, if you do these things, you will be blessed. If you don't do these things, you will be cursed. You choose blessing or cursing. It was based on repercussions, not the new covenant. And did you know because of Jesus, we can now approach the throne of grace 
with confidence? Did you know you don't have to go into a closet somewhere and have someone close a door and say something to another man or whatever to be able to talk to God? All you have to do, even right now, you can say God, and he'll say yes. Right into the throne of heaven. Number three, it's simple and personal, not seemingly unattainable. Verse 11. Under the old covenant, someone had to teach you the truths about God and all the laws and all the statues and all the ordinances, and it was considered impossible to do it all. Remember what James said in the epistle he wrote? Because there were some people, they were trying to keep every little thing in the law, and they couldn't do it. And he, and he said in, in the epistle he wrote, he said, if you fail in one part of the law, you failed in all of it. You can't, nobody can do this. Under the new covenant, Jesus has done it all for us, and everyone can have a personal relationship with him that wants one. There's a fourth thing. The new covenant provides what the old covenant could never provide, forgiveness. Verse 12. Listen to what he says again. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Wouldn't you like to be forgiven for everything you've ever done, wouldn't you like to know today that your slate could be wiped entirely clean and you could, just, you could just leave this place today brand new and starting over? That's the God we serve. That's the covenant we live under. Forgiveness has been called the capstone of the new covenant because it's what we need more than anything else, and the old covenant couldn't provide it. You see, under the old covenant, they were never completely forgiven because those sins were never completely forgotten. They were just covered over by the blood of animals. They were waiting. They were, they were, they were waiting for the true forgiveness that came at the cross of Calvary. In case you've ever wondered, well, how were the Old Testament saints saved, different from us today? I mean, did they have a whole other system of salvation? No, the same one. There's, all, there's only always been one. Theirs was pointing to the cross. Ours points back to the cross. Well, the conclusion, verse 13, listen to what he says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, that doesn't make sense from our perspective looking back, but to them it would have. Because, see, the temple was still standing. The priests were still offering sacrifices. That was all still going on. They had about four and a half years left before it was all destroyed. So he said, it's becoming obsolete. It's, it's, it's growing old and ready to vanish away. Now, spiritually speaking, that happened when Jesus died on the cross, when the veil in the temple, the width of a man's hand, was ripped from top to bottom. No one could do that except God. It was the spiritual end. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. But physically speaking, it happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple and ended the sacrificial system once for all. Done. Paul summarized all of this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, when he said, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's pretty simple, isn't it? There's one God. There's one mediator, Jesus Christ. And what he did on the cross was the most eloquent testimony ever given about the love of God. And it affects every one of us. So my question to you this morning is this. What is your testimony? 
Is your testimony, I have, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. And he is my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to live for him all the days of my life. I don't know about other people, but I'm sticking with him all the way to the end. I, I'm going to continue. I'm going to, I'm going to remain. I'm going to abide. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's really hard. But I'm going to continue. I'm going to stay there because I'm one of his disciples. That's your testimony? If it's not, that's why we have a decision time. Let's pray.